Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. And on this episode, I'm joined by my good friend, Nick Roberts. Nick is the Director of Marketing and Communications for Bonefish and Tarpon Trust, as well as the editor of the Bonefish and Tarpon Journal. Nick shares his journey to BTT and the great work BTT is doing to conserve the saltwater flat species so many of us love to chase. But before we move on to our interview, a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, it would be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And a shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode's brought to you by our friends at Postfly. Brian and his team make it easy for you to discover premium quality flies and gear with a box delivered to your doorstep every month. Check them out at www.postflybox.com and subscribe today. Now, on to our interview. So, Nick, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Thanks, Marvin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation, and we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. Uh, I always ask all of my guests to share their earliest fishing memory. I vaguely remember trying to surf fish with bait on family vacations to the North Carolina coast, but I never really had much luck. I didn't know what I was doing and always seemed to lose my uh, cut-up squid and shrimp to uh, small fish and never really caught a game fish doing that. Got it. So uh, when did you discover fly fishing? So I really got into fly fishing as a freshman at Duke University. I took a great fly fishing and fly tying class for a PE credit there um, and had a great instructor named Jan Hackett, who also owned an Orvis shop um, right near campus, which has since closed, unfortunately. And kind of fast forwarding along, you, you know, uh, from your time as a freshman at Duke, who are some of the people that have mentored you on your fly fishing journey? So after Duke, I worked for a year at Great Outdoor Provision in Wilmington, North Carolina. And, and the manager at the time, his name's uh, Tim Glover. Um, he's the first one that kind of showed me the ropes of saltwater fly fishing. We used to redfish in the marsh there around Wilmington and the intercoastal waterway, um, fish inshore for Spanish mackerel and stuff like that. And then I also learned a lot from two uh, Wilmington guide buddies, uh, Captain Will Hoffman and Captain Alan Kane. So you were you went to graduate school down at UNCW and you were working down there at Great Outdoor Provisions. How did you find your way to Western North Carolina? So after graduation, I moved to Asheville um, and I was there for about six years guiding and uh, and writing on a freelance basis. So I worked first for Curtis Wright Outfitters and then later on I worked for Davidson River Outfitters down in Brevard. How did you get into the guide game? got into guiding after college because it let me have time to work on my writing. Um, so when I went to graduate school for a master's in creative writing at UNC Wilmington, I kept guiding in the mountains of Western North Carolina during the summers. And then after grad school, I moved to the mountains full time. Guiding really gave me the time and flexibility to write on a daily basis. So that's what kind of first got me into the profession. Yeah, that's really interesting, you know, because most people are bonkers about guiding and then that's what they do, you know, so it was to really kind of to help you with your writing process. But, you know, also, you know, it takes a, a certain type of person to want to be a fishing guide. Kind of what let you know that that would work for you? So, of course, I love fly fishing and being on the water. So the opportunity to earn a living doing that was very appealing to me. And then I also really enjoy introducing people to the sport and getting to know people from different walks of life, which um, when you're a guide, you meet many, many people throughout the year. And a lot of them, 
you know, become friends and you fish with them over the course of different seasons. Um, so I've had the chance to guide anglers from many backgrounds and professions, and I'm friends with um, lots of them, uh, including yourself, and then um, still remain in touch with many of the guides that I worked with, too. Yeah, I mean, Kevin's got a great group of guys in the shop. Um, it's always a great place to stop at any time, just as a plug for for Kevin and Davidson River Outfitters. It's a great shop. It's right on the entrance, in, entrance into Pisgah. And uh, he's got really good folks. He's got great private water and he's got a really good shop. So, uh, um, you know, and it's interesting too, right? Another question I always ask um, all of my guide guests is to share their biggest misconception that they think people have about the life of a fishing guide. Sure. I think the biggest misconception, I think it's romanticized and that people think it's kind of a walk in the park, um, but the best most successful guides are very detail oriented and they work very hard from scouting new water to, um, you know, preparing for trips, tying flies, tying leaders to putting clients on fishing in challenging conditions. Um, and then the life of a guide can also be very unpredictable and that their livelihoods can be impacted by factors well beyond their control, such as droughts, too much rain and snow, and of course, hurricanes. Yeah, absolutely. I know you guys are, were, we're lucky at Davidson river. Cause I don't think people appreciate how long the guide season is in Western North Carolina compared to say like right. the Northern Rockies. Yeah. So, um, yeah, in Western North Carolina, you're guiding from, you know, in low water conditions often in the summer to high water in the spring. Um, and then throughout the winter, you're guiding as well on some really cold days, but very productive days for bigger fish. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, you're a writer. I don't know if a lot of people know that. Um, but uh, when did you get the writing bug? So I've been writing really since I was a kid. So I, I think I've more or less always had it. Um, I got serious about it late in high school and, and during college. Um, my parents were both very good writers. So I learned a lot from them and a lot of the great professors I, I had in college and then grad school after that. And do you remember the first piece that you published and got paid for? Yeah, I wrote a piece on Chris Craft Boats for Wrightsville Beach Magazine right after college um, when I was living in Wilmington. I, I was about 22. Very neat. And, you, you know, it's interesting. Um, I always like to ask uh, my writers to kind of share, uh, you know, where they get their writing ideas. Yeah, so I've been fortunate, um, you know, working as a guide and freelance writer in Asheville and then in, in my subsequent work with uh, – Bonefish Tarpon Trust to travel to a lot of different destinations. So that's inspired uh, many of the articles I've written. Um, and I think I enjoy not so much writing like the how-to articles as I do writing about what makes the, each, each of those fisheries unique and special and then any related conservation issues. Um, and I also really like telling the stories of the people whose livelihoods depend on the fisheries, on the health of the fisheries from you know, the guides to, um, lodge staff and lodge owners. Got it. And how do you like to write? So do you like to, do you set aside a time every day to write or do you kind of bunch time together kind of, uh, between other things that are going on? Yeah, I usually write, uh, early in the day, kind of before the workday starts, uh, my day job. And then I write, uh, lots of different drafts. Um, so just that's that's usually the process start with the general ideas and then kind of shape it and polish it through the process of drafting and, and when you write early in the day how much do you try to knock out before you get to the day job 
I try to do two hours. So I'll get up, um, and give myself two hours at the desk before I need to head into work. That's pretty disciplined. Yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, I, I think it seems like the best writers who, who juggle lots of different, uh, pursuits, you just have to take a very disciplined approach to it. Um, you know, and, and treat it with kind of a blue collar work ethic and just, you know, put in the time and, and get, get good drafts after drafts under your belt. Do you remember the oddest writing assignment you've had? Yeah, I I would say oddest and most depressing was probably writing short obituaries for Duke's alumni magazine. Um, but that process also taught me a lot about writing in a concise way because you were very limited on space and trying to sum up someone's accomplishments in, in about a paragraph. Yeah, that's uh that definitely is odd. Who's your favorite author? If I had to pick one, I would say Jim Harrison. If I had to pick two, I would say add in Cormac McCarthy too. Got it. And so, you know, you you went to Duke, uh, you went down to UNCW uh, for graduate school, and then you worked your way to Brevard and guided and uh, worked at DRO for six years. Tell us a little bit about how you uh, got called to the uh, mothership at BTT. Yep. So I uh, I applied for um, a membership and communications coordinator job at Bonefish Sharpen Trust down in Miami. Um, I used to manage uh, the membership program. Um, and then since then, I've worked my way up to becoming director of marketing and communications. And I'm now the editor of our magazine, the Bonefish and Tarpon Journal, which comes out every spring and fall. And, um, you know, for people that aren't familiar with Bonefish and Tarpon Trust, can you tell us a little bit about its history and its mission? Sure. Yeah. So Bonefish Tarpon Trust, it's a nonprofit based in Miami. It was founded in the Florida Keys more than 20 years ago um, by a small group of concerned anglers. And what they were concerned about was the rapid decline in bonefish populations in South Florida that they were witnessing. Um, so that group of, of founders uh, pooled their money and started BTT. And since that time, um, BTT has taken up uh, tarpon conservation work as well as permit conservation work. Um, so its mission is uh, conserving bonefish tarpon and permit fisheries. And we do that through science-based conservation, education, and advocacy. Um, so our, the re- the scientific research we do really informs our conservation. Um, and it's, it's really all about conservation outcomes for us. How does your organization differ from, I guess, similar conservation organizations like TU and Fly Fishers International? Sure. So BTT shares a common bond with TU and FFI through fishing, and, and we collaborate occasionally on things such as education and education, uh, uh, education and advocacy. Um, so in many respects, there are similarities among us in terms of how we work, uh, relying on research, education, and advocacy to achieve conservation outcomes. Uh, the principal difference is where we work. So BTT focuses on saltwater flats fisheries only, uh, this includes multiple species and habitat types um, where you don't find the other groups as much, and then uh, working um, with fisheries at scale. Um, another difference may be how we work with collaborating scientists. So as a small nonprofit, BTT is able to accomplish a lot by enlisting the help of scientists across the country who conduct flats-related research on BTT grants that we give. Um, and that's allowed us to really become a leader in saltwater flats conservation. 
And do you have clubs or do you uh, have kind of a different way of uh, having kind of outreach with kind of the angling public? Sure. So we don't have clubs like TU does, but what we do have is an extensive membership program. Um, and those membership levels begin at $35 for a year and they go up. Um, so our membership is, you know, very important to our mission. Uh, we're membership based. So in that way, we're similar to TU. Got it. And can you give us a kind of a highlight of some of the stuff you guys are working on in Florida and elsewhere? Sure. So we're now working. So we, while we were founded in Florida, um, we're now working from the Bahamas all the way to the Yucatan Peninsula um, and all along the U.S. coast from Texas to Virginia. Um, we have full-time staff in Florida, the Bahamas, and along the Belize-Mexico border. And we also have collaborating scientists working in other areas such as Cuba. Um, one of our largest projects um, that's ongoing is the Tarpon Acoustic Tagging Project, and that's sponsored by Maverick Boat Group. Uh, this project consists of tagging tarpon in a wide range of sizes from, you know, little 5- to 10-pound juvenile tarpon all the way up to the giant fish in the 150-pound range. Um, so we tag them with acoustic transmitters, and this allows our scientists to track their movements and habitat use for approximately five years. This project is a really good example of the range of our work since we're tracking tarpon not only in Florida but throughout the southeast U.S., we, we recently launched a tagging program in Texas as well. Uh, to date, we've tracked tarpon in five states and have compiled nearly 200,000 detections, um, including movement data across multiple years for individual fish, uh, which no other tarpon research study has ever accomplished. Um, and then at home in Florida, uh, we're currently advocating for a seasonal no fishing closure at Western Dry Rocks. Uh, Western Dry Rocks is a is the most important permit spawning site in the Lower Keys. It's near Key West, um, and while there are catch and release regulations in place during the permit spawning season, um, our research has con- concluded that 39% of hooked permit are actually lost to sharks. So even though it's it may be catch and release during that time of year we're losing an unsustainable amount of fish to uh, depredation um, while they're hooked, um, which is problematic, you know, in order to make it a sustainable fishery, we need to um, address that issue. Um, so I can tell you more later about how, how people can voice their support for that initiative. Um, we're also in the Bahamas assessing mangrove damage. Um, mangroves are a vital part of bonefish habitat and, the hurricane, Hurricane Dorian severely impacted them in the northern Bahamas. So we're currently surveying the damage there. And then that uh, information will be used to inform our restoration efforts set to begin later this year. That's a lot of stuff. Are those kind of the main uh, areas of concern for BTT or are there other kind of high level um, er- you know, areas that you guys are trying to kind of keep your eyes on? So we have about 20 projects going at the moment. So there's, there's a lot. I mean, I would say that the, the biggest issues for us um, are water quality and then the degradation of habitat. So habitat loss is a huge um, detriment to the fishery and huge threat to the fishery. Um, and then compromised water in places like South Florida um, with contaminants, um, and nutrient runoff can accelerate that. 
Um, and then unsustainable fishing practices like those taking place at Western dry rocks where, you know, about 39% of hooked permit are, are being lost to sharks is another example of a, a very pressing conservation concern. Got it. And obviously we're recording this, uh, on the last day of March and, you know, the entire world is embroiled in this COVID-19 crisis and, you know, appropriately, you know, looking out for their family and looking out for their fellow man. What kind of challenge does that create for you at BTT to help people maintain their focus on your mission at an appropriate level? Sure. Yeah. During this time of uncertainty, our, our members and supporters are still very engaged through our social media accounts. Um, we recently released a new tarpon conservation film just a few days ago, and we'll be sharing new content on a regular basis uh, just to engage with our, our members and followers. Um, and there's still plenty of conservation work to do. And through um, our online platform, members can still respond to calls to action, like voicing their support for uh, spawning um, seasonal closure at Western Dry Rocks. Um, so if folks want to learn more about that, they can just visit btt.org backslash protect permit. Got it. And, you know, obviously it's very early on in this entire COVID-19 uh, pandemic, but uh, what are the thoughts at BTT around, you know, this event's long and long-term and short-term uh, impacts on your mission? Sure. Like, like you and I've talked about uh, before we've, our nation's never faced anything like this. Um, we're at the point where it's, it's not possible to make predictions or project outcomes in the short run. We all need to follow the direction we're receiving from state and federal authorities on things like sheltering in place, such as, what's happening now in South Florida, where BTT is based. Um, so our focus is on public health and safety, and that means we're not able to do a lot of fishing right now. Um, it also means our scientists have to come off the water. So for the next um, one to three months, let's say, our research projects will be on pause. Um, we also won't have our usual opportunities this spring to spend time with our members and supporters at BTT events, which have been postponed. Um, so that's going to reduce our fundraising on the year, but I'm hopeful that we'll be able to make up a lot of that through donor contributions. Um, and then long-term, we're hopeful that we'll be returning to some sense of normalcy by the summer. And as you mentioned uh, earlier uh, in our interview, you know, BTT um, uh, isn't unique, but the kind of the core of what it does is basically science-based. And I know that you guys have regular, uh, gatherings of the scientific community. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Sure. So we actually have a, a major event every three years called the International Science Symposium and Flats Expo. So our last one was November of 2017. So we have one coming up uh, November 2020, um, the 13th and 14th, and that's in Weston, Florida. Um, Marvin, I'd, I'd love to have you there. Um, so this symposium basically brings together stakeholders um, from throughout the world of flats fishing, from scientists and guides to lodge owners um, and policymakers. And, you know, we're, we're, having to get, we're bringing together people not only from Florida and the Bahamas, but also Belize, Mexico, um, other great flats destinations. So it's really a unique event and that it consists of science presentations, um, clinics by legends like Andy Mill, um, a film night, um, 
a banquet, cocktail party. So it's it's really kind of a um, who's who of the flats fishing world combined with the latest uh, research on flats fishing conservation. So um, I'd invite anyone out there to to attend. It's great, you know, whether you're new to saltwater fishing or you've been doing it for 20 years, I think everyone can learn a lot about it and, and a lot about what we're doing on the conservation front. Yeah, absolutely. And I will um, drop a link to that event uh, in the show notes too. Great. And, and so, you know, we t- you touched on this a little bit earlier because I know some of your fundraising events for this year have been postponed, but, you know, can you give us kind of a 30,000 foot view of how uh, Bonefish and Tarpon Trust funds its operations? Sure. Yeah, we're we're funded through um, membership, uh, private donation, um, grants. Got it. And do you, can you give a rough ballpark on kind of what the mix is of those three? So our our last uh, 2018 report, we we're 75 percent contributions and grants, 17 percent fundraising and events, and then eight percent were membership dues. So, you know, we talked about your science symposium and some of your fundraising events. You know, how does Bonefish and Tarpon Trust engage with the angling public on a day-to-day basis? So we have, as I mentioned before, we have an extensive membership program. And then we also, um, education is a huge part of our mission. So we do educational outreach um, with school-age kids all the way up to, you know, the angling public. Um some examples of this include producing catch and lease videos that go over best handling practices for tarpon and bonefish. Um, and then we also engage with the angling public as, in terms of advocacy. So the example of Western Dry Rocks is a, is a prime example of that, where we're calling on the angling public to help us um, voice their support for a spawning season closure at Western Dry Rocks, which is the most important uh, permit spawning site in the lower keys. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I've noticed that you frequently reach out to your membership to weigh in on issues related to habitat degradation. Yeah. So habitat degradation is a major, um, problem, not only in Florida, but also throughout the range where we work in Belize and Mexico, for example, um, there's an increased amount of development. So we actually just launched a, um, a comprehensive plan for Belize and Mexico that's going to seek to address a lot of the threats to the flats fishery. And then at home in Florida, we're actively working to restore juvenile tarpon habitat. So a lot of people don't realize that, you know, the giant tarpon people come down to fish for in the Everglades and the Keys, they begin as just tiny, tiny fish living in these backwater creeks. And a lot of those creeks are impacted by development. So what we're doing in restoring those creeks is um, helping to sustain and conserve the population so that more of those larger fish are available for, for anglers in our generation and the next generation to go and catch. Yeah, absolutely. I know a lot of those game fish that we like to target on the flats and inshore nursery and those mangroves and back in these kind of salt marshes. And, you know, we're losing that type of land more and more every day to development, as you mentioned. Yeah, exactly. Yep. That's one of the biggest threats to the fishery is habitat degradation and loss. Got it. And, you know, obviously it's very early. Do you have any thoughts around how the COVID-19 crisis is going to impact um, our angling community and kind of how we interact with each other in the future? Well, I think it's going to naturally 
bring us together more online since, you know, there may be more ways that we interact virtually from, you know, fly tying seminars to casting seminars to uh, more use of things like Facebook live streaming. Um, so in that way, I think that the online community may get stronger, more robust. Do you think that's going to be a lasting change or do you think that's something that kind of people, when things return back to normal, they're going to kind of go back to their old ways? I think it may be a lasting change in that we're going to get more efficient and more savvy about how to do it. I think a lot of people maybe who are, who are stuck at home right now are learning more about platforms like Zoom and Facebook. And so they might be more comfortable using those platforms to communicate with, you know, friends and families, family and fishing buddies uh, going forward. No, it makes a lot of sense. And on a more positive note, can you share some of your recent social distancing experiences on the water? I've seen some pictures on Instagram. Sure. Yeah. So, um, before I'm, I'm currently up in the Blue Ridge mountains, but, uh, just before I left, I had the chance to, um, go out and help one of our scientists tag bonefish in Biscayne Bay, which is, um, the main body of water right by, by Miami. Um, so what we're doing in tagging these bonefish is trying to locate where these fish are spawning, um, which is obviously locating that as a huge piece of the conservation puzzle. Um, so I had the chance to go out with our scientist, Dr. Ross Buschek, and then um, a Miami guide, Martin Carranza, um, who guides throughout Biscayne Bay. Um, so that was, that was a great, uh, great day on the water, kind of as the COVID stuff was starting to heat up in Miami. Um, and then since then, I've had the chance to do some trout fishing up in North Carolina as well. Got it. Any other silver linings you have in these odd times? Yeah, I, I would think that um, for a lot of people, it's, it's been a really good chance to just kind of slow down and reconnect with uh, friends and family since a lot of us are sequestered at home. Um, so in, in that way, I, you know, I think, you know, uh, maintaining and, and building new relationships is a, uh, is a silver lining during this, this time, uh, when we, a lot of us have extra time on our hands and less distractions. Yeah, I can definitely tell you, I've spent a lot more time with my family and it's been really good to, uh, to spend time with my kids for sure. Uh, before, yeah. before I let you hop, uh, why don't you let folks know where they can learn more about BTT and how they can get involved? Sure. To learn more about Bonefish and Tarpon Trust, uh, head over to www.btt.org. And then from there, if you'd like to learn about our membership program, there's a big membership button that says join or renew at the top. Um, And then there's also plenty of information about upcoming events. And then our blog is actually on that same page, btt.org. So if you just scroll down a little bit, you can see the latest uh, conservation updates um, and uh, all sorts of great fly fishing and and flats fishing content there. Well, that's awesome. Well, Nick, I appreciate you uh, taking a little bit of time away from the water today to, to, uh, to talk to me. Thanks, Marvin. It's been great. Appreciate being on. Absolutely. Take care. Stay safe. You too. Thanks. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. And again, a shout out to this episode's sponsor, our friends at PostFly. Go to www.postflybox.com and check them out today. Stay safe, everybody. Tight lines.